Luke chapter 10 is our sermon text for this morning. This is found on page 1612, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 17 through 24. This is God's word given to us, his people, for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Luke 10, verses 17 through 24. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, imagine that there's a young girl who has just started playing in a basketball league. And in one of her first games, she hits the game-winning basket. Her dad was there to see it all. And she's so excited for the drive home to talk about all the things that have transpired and to hear how pleased her father is. But on the drive home, a strange thing happens. Her father turns to her and says, Oh, daughter, rejoice not that you made the game-winning basket. Rejoice that there is no traffic on this drive home, and currently I'm getting over 30 miles to the gallon. The daughter would be confused, distressed, perhaps sad, She wants her dad to be proud of her. She wants her dad to be pleased with what she has done, but his mind is elsewhere. But imagine that the father didn't say that at all. He was pleased with what she had done. But they they got home, flipped on the news, and they found out that uh, they had just narrowly escaped an active shooter situation right at the school where this game had taken place. As they thought back on that day, would they rejoice more in the game or the result of the game? Or would they rejoice that the providence of God had kept them safe? You see, when you change a bit of your perspective, sometimes there are better reasons to rejoice. Jesus speaks with his disciples that he has sent out this morning. And he tells them that uh, there are better reasons to rejoice than the reasons that they're rejoicing. He's bringing their their minds and their attention to other things. 
And Jesus' words are both a comfort to us, even now today, and also a wonderful reminder to make sure that we are rejoicing ultimately for the right and the best reasons. So, three things. First, we rejoice in a heavenly home. Rejoice in a heavenly home. Secondly, we rejoice in sovereign grace. And lastly, we rejoice in seeing the fullness of God's plan. First, first in this point will be uh, the longest one this morning. Rejoice in a heavenly home. Jesus sees these disciples return. Uh, 70 or 72, we spoke about that last week. Last week, Jesus sends them out, reminds us of the evangelical mission of the church and that the church is to be a mission-minded people. And that was one of the things that we reminded ourselves of last week. And uh, because there were numbers involved, everyone who was here last week had to hear Pastor Dan attempt to do math problems. And for Pastor Dan, math is just that. It's a problem. And so I said something to the effect of 12 times 5 is 70 or 72. And whatever it was, it was way off. And so uh, students, young people, you can disregard what Pastor Dan says in regards to, uh, to numbers. But we spoke about the evangelical mission of the church. These 70 or 72 had been sent out to uh, preach and proclaim and to heal, to spread the kingdom of God. They returned. They're excited particularly about one aspect of what they had done. They're not excited, notice, about uh, healing diseases and afflictions in people who needed it. They're not excited about people turning uh, to Jesus and, and hearing the message of the kingdom of God and repenting. They are excited uh, that demons have been submitting to them in Jesus' name. And this has been something that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke. Remember that, that Jesus speaks with authority. And it's as if he, he blasts away sicknesses. He blasts away demons if they are oppressing people. He blasts away, even remember, the winds and the waves. And this is part of what the kingdom of God is. Jesus bringing the reign of God to earth in a very real and tangible way. Coming and setting right all of those things that have entered the world through sin and the fall and the rebellion of men. So these sent ones, these disciples, come back and they are excited about the authority and the power that they've been able to show in the face of these demons. We hear this and we can probably relate, right? Because one would think that this is probably the showiest aspect of what they were doing, the most visible display of their power, perhaps the most impressive aspect of what Jesus has sent them to do. So they come and they're excited to tell Jesus about this. They want to please their master. They want him to be proud of him. So Jesus responds, as he often does, in a roundabout way. And what he does is he shows them, as he weaves through a couple different thoughts, that they are to rejoice, not necessarily for this, but for a different reason. And that's that first point, rejoice in a heavenly home. So what does Jesus say to them? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, this is a, a wonderful and a glorious truth. We're going to unpack it a little bit. It's a great comfort to us as Christians. And Jesus is afterwards going to show, going to show that they, they, however, need to be thinking of this in the right way. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning uh, from heaven. When they first heard this, those disciples that are returning, they probably would have been even more excited. It seems like Jesus is feeding into uh, their desire to think about things in these ways, these visible displays of power. 
And so Jesus speaks of something that would get them even more excited. It's, it's a victory, a tangible victory that perhaps tops even the demons submitting to them. So who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about Satan. And this is the first time that the name Satan has appeared in the Gospel of Luke. Up to this point, it has been the devil. And we can think particularly of when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, that, that face-off between Jesus and the devil in the wilderness. So in using the name Satan, we should note a few things. The name Satan simply means adversary. He is the ultimate enemy of God. Some people may say, is Satan or the devil, is it just an idea? Is it just a force? No. It's very clear from the words of Jesus and from the writers of the Gospels, from the writers of the New Testament, that Satan is a personal being. He is the chief adversary of God and all that is good. Yes, a spiritual being, but a personal being. And insofar as the scriptures speak of Satan being in heaven, what is he in relation to God's people? He's an accuser. He's an accuser. He accuses God's people of not obeying the Lord. You can think perhaps of Job chapter 1. Satan is seen in, in the throne room of heaven there. He accuses Job. He says, God, Job does not have real faith. He just trusts in you because you've given him nice things. Take all of that away. And I, and I tell you that he will rebuke you. I will tell you that he will, uh, he will disparage your name. He will leave you. He will not be faithful. Elsewhere, we could think of Zechariah chapter 3, where Joshua the high priest appears before the angel of the Lord, but he's clothed in, in, in filthy clothes that symbolize sin. And Satan says, he can't, he can't appear before you like that. He's an accuser. He is an accuser. He's the ultimate enemy of God. And it's not comforting in any way to have an accuser, is it? It's really not. I mean, perhaps you can remember uh, back when you were a child or if you're a child now, think of being at home or being at school and someone's following you around, a brother or a sister or a classmate, waiting for you to do something wrong so that they can run and they can tell mommy or that they can tell the teacher. When someone watches you like that, it's hopeless, isn't it? It's hopeless because sooner or later, all of us mess up. And so having an accuser is the furthest thing from comforting. Having an accuser in heaven is the least comforting thing we could ever imagine, perhaps. And so we realize the enormous nature of what Jesus is saying. Satan has been cast out. He, he has fallen from heaven. This has huge implications for our lives and, and it's one of the chief comforts that we experience in Christ. Scholars, theologians have argued about what exactly it is that Jesus sees. And I think what we can say is this, that the time in heaven doesn't always match up with time on earth. Ultimately, Satan is cast out of heaven because of the victory of Christ, which is ultimately seen in the cross and the resurrection. But Jesus speaks of it happening now. And his gospel has, his kingdom has been going forward. And there's a sense in which uh, Jesus has already defeated Satan. He defeated him in the wilderness. And so after he comes out of the wilderness, what is he? He's a righteous king. He's an obedient son. And so his marching through the world is in some ways a strange victory march. Well, he will, he will march to the end of his victory, which will be this, this sort of counterintuitive victory of the cross. And so Jesus sees Satan fall uh, from heaven here and even now. And so as we return to this idea of being cast out 
of heaven. That is exactly what the kingdom of God does. The kingdom of God, Jesus and his work, seals up the certainty of salvation. Jesus levels the accounts of heaven. Because of Jesus, the one who accuses the people of God has been thrown down, has been cast out. The accuser is no longer there. He or she doesn't have faith, God. Look at, look at his or her sin. How could you ever say that that is your person if that's what they do? The one who accuses us has been cast out. In Revelation 12, the Apostle John has a, a sweeping view, prophetic view of redemptive history. And he speaks of the casting out of heaven, of Satan. He says this in Revelation chapter 12. As he takes in this vision, this heavenly vision. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Notice John wants us to make no mistake about who he's talking about here. Dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Because of Christ, because ultimately of the blood of Christ, Satan has been cast out of heaven. He's not there anymore. Never to bring a charge, never to accuse you in God's presence. And why is that? It's because Christ stands before his Father. It's because Christ speaks, his, speaks our names to the Father. His sacrifice gives us every assurance that we can be in the presence of God because no one is there to accuse us. So take great comfort in, in that this morning, brothers and sisters. The accuser of God's people has been thrown down. And Jesus uses this in a way to, uh, to initially show them that they're, they need to think about it in a little bit of a different way so that this might become ultimately even more of a comfort to them. He speaks of the, the power and the authority that they have and he speaks to them almost like uh, a superhero. He says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Remember last week that Jesus sent out these disciples and he told them not to bring any what? Any sandals. So whether it was they had to go barefoot or they couldn't take an extra pair of sandals, their feet are in a sense unprotected. It's those very same unprotected feet that are treading on serpents and scorpions. They're given this authority, and, and Revelation 12 reminds us of something, because if Satan has been thrown out of heaven, where does that mean he is now? It means that he's on the earth. Revelation 12 says this, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. That's what's going on now. The devil knows that his time is short. He knows that... He has already been defeated. And so what is he coming to do now on the earth? To steal, to kill, and destroy. Peter says he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's a destroyer. He's a destroyer of life. And Jesus says, I have given you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, which is imagery of evil things. Those who do the, the, the bidding of this same Satan, serpents and scorpions. He's not speaking literally, he's speaking in terms of imagery here. 
And Jesus, in this way, has brought their excitement to a fever pitch, right? Their authority that they're going to show. Jesus is speaking about that, and then he says that very pesky word, however, or nevertheless, right? Nevertheless, what a word. Just when you think you have everything figured out, all of a sudden there's something else that you realize you haven't considered. Nevertheless, Jesus says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, which is the very reason they were rejoicing, right? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you have a heavenly home. Many ancient kingdoms would keep a roll of their citizens. Their their names would be written in a book in the capital of the kingdom. And so Jesus isn't using uh, nebulous sort of spiritual language. Your names are written in the stars or your names are written in the clouds. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your name is written in the book of life. You are enrolled as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the only true and lasting kingdom, the only city that has foundations, the only city ultimately whose eternal builder is God, the only city that will never fade away. That is why you want to rejoice. So friends, beloved brothers, sisters, rejoice not when visible power is displayed in you. Rejoice not in in status, Rejoice not in worldly achievements. The Apostle Paul says, Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in a heavenly home. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven if you are in Christ. Secondly, Jesus calls us to rejoice in sovereign grace. Rejoice in sovereign grace. And that's exactly what he does. He, uh, we read in verse 21, right? At that same time. And Luke is trying to tell us that what Jesus is doing is connected to what he has just said. He's going to give us a tangible example of how we are to live out this exhortation from him, rejoicing in a heavenly home. And so he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prays to his Father. By the way, isn't it wonderful when you get these, these little Trinitarian glimpses? You have Jesus filled with the joy in the Holy Spirit praying to the Father. That's not the, the primary thing that Luke is trying to tell us in this passage. But it's right there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is filled with, the joy, with joy in the Holy Spirit, and he prays to his Father. And that's another lesson that we can learn, right? Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does he do? You know, so many people are, are always wondering, what, what are manifestations of the Spirit? Where do we see it? How do we know it? Jesus here, filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, what does he do? He praises God for his sovereign grace. That's one of the things that we do. We're filled with the joy of uh, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus praises the Father that he has hidden these things, which, what are these things? The, the casting out of Satan from heaven, uh, the, the growth of the kingdom of God, God's protection of his people. Uh, he has hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to little babes. The word here is infants. And we, of course, in our tradition, treasure our children amongst us. We could have a discussion about that, and that would be uh, legitimate. But Jesus speaks of infants here in contrast to the wise and the intelligent. In other words, he is telling us that sovereign grace is grace. Because if you look at God bestowing something, revealing something to babies, and and not revealing it to the wise and the intelligent, you would look at that from the 30,000-foot view of grace, and you would say, whatever God is doing, he's not doing it because... The, the, the people who receive it deserve it. 
Babies have not been around long enough to, to merit any special consideration from God. So it's hidden from the wise and the intelligent, and it is revealed to little babes. It is grace. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. That is what Jesus is teaching us, that sovereign grace is grace. But he's also teaching us that sovereign grace is sovereign. Sovereign grace is sovereign. And throughout this prayer, Jesus makes several points about God's initiative in giving grace. Of course, that's, we, we talk about that and we use the word election. God's initiative in, in showing and giving grace. God's initiative in saving. We talk about God's sovereignty in salvation. It's because he reaches out all of the way to a sinner. He doesn't reach out part of the way and then the sinner reaches out part of the way. God reaches out all of the way, plucks a sinner out of condemnation and brings them to to himself. And we note that Jesus says it was the Father's good pleasure to do this. It was the Father's good pleasure to, to choose to bestow his grace upon his own. And secondly, we see that it's the ministry of Jesus which is a real outworking of the Father's sovereign grace, right? We look in the Gospel of John, we remember Jesus always, is always saying things like, I know the will of the Father, I have carried out the will of the Father. Jesus knows it, keeps it, and perfectly executes it. So when Jesus reveals the truth of the kingdom of God, he is carrying out the Father's will. And when he shows it to certain people, he is working out the sovereign grace of God. Jesus rejoices in sovereign grace, in election. And we should too. We should rejoice in God's decision to save, in his decision to bestow grace and to save sinners. Why should we rejoice in election? Because God, because we understand it saying God says you and not you? No, that's not it at all. Because it gives us something to feel good about? Oh, well, I'm chosen. I'm chosen by God, and and apparently this person is not. No, no. That's to flip the meaning of election on its head. Listen to what one of our Reformed forefathers says about this. The doctrine of election is a source of inexpressibly great comfort. If it were based on justice and merit, all would be lost. But now that election operates according to grace, there is hope even for the most wretched. That's what election teaches us. If work and reward were the standard of admission into the kingdom of heaven, its gates would be opened for no one. To believe in and to confess election is to recognize even the most unworthy and degraded human being is a creature of God and an object of eternal love. God's sovereign choice to bestow grace, to reach all the way out to a sinner, to pluck him or her out of condemnation, to drag them into a state of blessedness, to give them eyes to see the truth, is taught in the scriptures so that we might be comforted through it, so that we might be reminded that without God's initiative, we would be lost, without God feeding us the good news of the gospel. As a mother feeds her child, we would be lost. It is taught so that we might know that our salvation rests in the unchanging and the unshakable and the never-failing purposes of God. That's why the Bible assures us that your name is written in heaven. It was written in the book of life before the foundations of the earth were laid. And that is not to, uh, to bring discomforts, to turn off the many, 
right? It's given to invite all to participate in the riches of God's grace in Christ. That same theologian that I spoke about, he goes on to say that no one has a right to believe that they are reprobate. Because so often we look at our lives and we say, I'm, I'm struggling with sin. It must be that God hasn't chosen me. I'm struggling with this and I, and I don't know what to do about it. He would say, no. Election is given particularly for you so that you can know that your salvation rests not in what you do, but in the unchanging, the unshakable, the never-failing purposes of God. So the call is to trust in Christ. And that's why the gospel can be spread abroad throughout the world so that many might come to know and might believe. For it is the gospel that is the power of God. Rejoice in sovereign grace. And then finally, rejoice in the fullness of seeing God's plan. And this, is, this point is very simple. It's very simple. Jesus says John the Baptist is... Uh, the, the greatest in the line of Old Testament prophets, but the one who is least in the kingdom of God is uh, greater than he. Thus Jesus pronounces this beatitude. Blessed are you who see what you see. Blessed are you who hear what you hear. He pronounces this beatitude uh, to, to, to show that we are blessed if we occupy this place in redemptive history. To hear about Jesus Christ. To hear about what he has done. To hear about Satan's being cast out of heaven. To hear that our place in heaven is secure. That he stands before the Father and speaks our name. That he has entered into the eternal tabernacle to present his work before the Father. Jesus says, blessed are you if you hear that message. Adam, Abraham, King David, Isaiah, Zechariah. They all wish that they could have heard that. And so may the message of Jesus Christ, may, the, may hearing the truth, of the person and the work of Christ never get old for us. Rejoice in hearing and seeing the fullness of God's plan. How wise it is from beginning to end. If you think about it from Genesis to Revelation, it's God's wisdom. Only God, only God could save in such a glorious and profound way. It's true that in the place, the, the time in which we live, this time of, of great blessedness, and we see so much of God's common blessings spread about, and we think primarily of perhaps the field of medicine and, and the many ways in which we have all these comforts afforded to us now, staggering. And in most cases, things turn out okay in this life. You know, a lot of people have that mindset, oh, it's going to be okay. And, and they sort of say that because in today's day and age, it probably is true more than it is false. But what might we say when tragedy befalls us. I think there's something deeper that the, the people of God need to know rather than just, it's going to be okay. What do we do when the unexpected happens? Tragedy touches our families. What do we do when a mass shooting touches our neighborhoods or the people of God are targeted in, in these inhumane ways? The, our brothers and sisters in Texas probably aren't saying things are okay right now. Jesus says in this passage, nothing will harm you to his followers. Nothing will harm you. Was that true? Well, from an earthly perspective, no, it, it wasn't true. Most of the apostles were killed, martyred for their faith. The first couple hundred years for the church was, was massively challenging and in many ways uh, terrible. But so was Christ killed. So was Jesus killed. Subjected to pain, all kinds of torment, in the suffering of Jesus, 
we find hope and meaning to all that happens down below. Rejoice not in worldly power. Rejoice that your accuser has been thrown down. That in Christ no one can bring a charge against you. Rejoice in Jesus. Rejoice in seeing the fullness of God's plan. Rejoice in sovereign grace. And rejoice in a heavenly home. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks, praise, and adoration. May you hide this word in our hearts. May you illumine its meaning fully to our, to our minds. We are a humble people, forgiven by you, saved by your sovereign grace. And Father, may we, may we ever be compelled to live, to live humbly and to be lights for you in this world to be the salt that you call us to be and that you have made us in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. May we live in light of all you have done for us. May we rest in our Savior. May may we rejoice for the best reasons. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We end our service this morning. Let's stand together, number 539 in the red, and sing all four verses of Jerusalem the golden. Stand together and sing.
Amen. Have a great day in Christ. It's my understanding that people are invited down for cake. Is that right? Okay. We're invited down for, for a cake at a time of celebration down in the uh, fireside room. So uh, have a great day in the Lord. Receive the benediction of our God. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.